We welcome all of our new online listeners. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephen Finney, the hosting pastor of XL Church in IOM America. My wife Jane and I are blessed that you decided to join us. XL represents Exchange Life. Our church is an outreach of IOM America. Everything we do sits upon the pedestal of compassion. So let's get started. Enjoy the worship, illustrative videos, prayer, and weekly message. Why are people protesting rights that God didn't give them? Why all the violence? Who is behind these senseless acts of depravity? Most importantly, what is God going to do about it? Murder, protest, looting, abuse, anarchy, and relentless lies. What is it they want? Power? Control? Socialism? What is it? To what end will they go to seize it? And the answer is mayhem and destruction. There are two common opposite errors when analyzing riots. Many times in society, as a whole, falls into degenerate debates and wondering over culturally implosive ideations. Other times, a believer's curiosity comes to a screeching halt as they throw up their hands at what they've begun to feel as an impossible and fruitless issue to engage. Let's take a look at the two primary categories that are actually in common, but yet very opposite. The mainstream, speculation. A slip into the rut of unwarranted speculation and guesswork based on mainstream media and rumors. By most norms, the mainstream frenzy is inflated until desired results are accomplished even if they populate lies to achieve their objective. Advocates marginalize the real issues, pushing innocent bystanders to help advance their cause. Now the upstream people, criticism or cynicism, a slip into the rut of shoulder-shrugging cynicism about the implosive cultural issues which results in downplaying or ignoring the critical issues at hand. A balanced understanding seems unattainable, so they abandon careful analysis as to the truth of the matter. Pathetically, 
They decentralize their beliefs in order to survive. Irony becomes a lifestyle. These two possibilities represent two dangerous mindsets as a culture deludes into the melting pot of a pluralistic society. The third group is not even listed, and I call them the stream, meaning the primary stream of influence through the indwelt Christians, which, by the way, is the targeted group that the above groups impinge. As an example, our present-day riots have little to do with Floyd, the Antifa, or even socialism. Not in God's view. People riot because they are filled with hate, and they don't know what to do with it, so they riot. Secondly, and more significantly, people in general protest because they are simply consumed by secondary issues, fighting for rights that God never gave them. Whatever happened to you, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That's out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Those days are gone, and this is why. God the Father would like nothing more than have his Son, Jesus, the crucified Messiah and risen King, to make all things new and set the world right. But according to biblical prophecy, this simply is not going to happen. End times prophecies reveal to us that Satan will rule the earth for seven years in his great tribulation. For a global leader, the Antichrist, to step up, the world needs to be in absolute, utter chaos. Once he does, and he will, the first half of his reign will be 100% world peace. It will require the world as a whole to be saturated in socialism. If you want the authentic reason for the world's chaos and the why as to our culture becoming more chaotic by the day, this is the reason. Pastors, teachers, and prophets have been warning the world for generations that this time will come. Jesus warned us personally. But you see, non-indwell people are depraved. And they need Jesus. People filled with hate do convert, but they are few. Most filled with hate hate Jesus. It tells us this out of Jesus' own mouth in John chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. It is the reason for their insane actions of depravity. Don't take it personally. Christians need to spend less time painting their agenda on picket signs and more time on leading the picketers to Christ. Start with your panic. Reset your vision on Christ. Trust in His why the world needs to implode. Put your picket sign down and pick up your Bible. Start using the issues of our day to communicate authentic truth. 
Christian, listen to me carefully. Need I remind you that you are the only Bible the depraved world will read? Commit to Christ that you will spend just as much time in the Word as you might be dedicating to the news. Start with the book of Revelation. We need to stop looking into the world for answers and formulate a world view straight from the throne of God. This is our answer. My name is Dr. Stephen Finney, and I care about Christ, culture, and Creator. Every tribe, every people 
Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we plead with you today to grant us understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the details that you have written in the book of Revelation and regarding the seven seals. Lord, this is such a mystery to so many Christians. They appear to be such mysterious writings that we agree that it's going to take the Holy Spirit to grant us understanding. Lord God, there's so many who are just searching for worldly answers in a time of great distress that you, O God, have allowed to be upon our nations. If we carefully examine what you have written for us, we can see the answers in Christ Jesus. But we acknowledge that without the Holy Spirit, it is literally impossible for humans, indwelt by Christ or not, to understand the things that you laid out that must take place. You said that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And in John's revelation, Father, you revealed to us that there is only one who is worthy to open this book that holds the seven seals of the end times. That is none other than the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, who has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I pray for every single believer that struggles with even taking the time to read the book of Revelation. Fill them with passion and a desire to read the book. Pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the details in this book. You have laid it out clearly for us, Lord. Many just call upon you every day asking for answers when you have already written the answers, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the remaining books of the Bible. O oh God, it is us who do not seek your word. We know that without your word, we will be unstable in all of our ways. So now we ask and appeal to you to open our minds and eyes to see all the things on the earth and in heaven that you have chosen for us to see. And Lord, we only pray in the power, the authority of Jesus Christ. In his blessed name, amen. Welcome to our weekly online church service. Hi, my name is Dr. Finney and I will be your speaker today. We are on a journey, a journey through the book of Revelation. Our main theme is unfolding the power of prophecy. We are honored that you have decided to join us. Expect to be challenged and blessed. Most Christians today avoid the study of this book. It is a sad reality. We here at XL Church refuse to be a part of such a group. 
The Lord has blessed us with a deep understanding of his prophecies. We pray that all who listen today will be motivated to study his final words to the churches. Today we begin with our lesson, The Seven Seals. This is number 21 within our series. And hey, by the way, feel free to contact me personally if you have any questions. Dr. Finney at IOMAmerica.org. Let's get started. Let's take a look at our scripture for today. This is out of Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with the seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. No one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so that as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Let's review the secrets that are hidden within this glorious passage. It is critical that we rightly divide this section of scripture. Many theologians believe this passage contains the secret of the remaining chapters and is the key that opens the entire book of Revelation. And after all my studies, I agree. This quote-unquote little book is so significant that it will help us understand the truth contained in the entire book of Revelation. The Greek word used here for book is translated scroll. Why is this so important? A book is in pages, and a scroll is in Hebrew cylinder format. Books are classically post Hebrew error, and God is making it evident, once again, that his life, manners, customs, and operations are pure Hebrew, for he is Hebrew. Seriously, who is to open this book? A bold and strong angel comes forth to proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now get this. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open this book or even look into it. That means no one. John became so overwhelmed by the fact that the book could not be opened, he weeps a sorrow of regret. About that time, one of the 24 elders tells him to stop weeping because the Lion of Judah, the son of Jacob that saves Joseph, the Christ figure, The root of David, coming from David's loins, has overcome the evil one to open the scroll by breaking 
the seven seals, one at a time. The scroll sealed with the seven seals contains the redemptive contracting terms for the earth. There are three primary Hebrew laws of redemption, the first being the law of redemption concerning a wife. If a husband died, leaving no children, the husband's brother was to take his widow. Likewise, Jesus with his blood, look up Acts 20 verse 28, redeemed his bride, us, the church. He killed off the old man, past husband, and took us under his name, new husband. The second is the law of redemption concerning a slave. If a man lost all that he had and could not pay his debt, his creditors could take him as their slave. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve. They created a debt that they could not pay. Their master became Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Christ came to pay that ransom debt to take us as his own, as, by the way, the bride of Christ. The third and final law of redemption is the law of redemption concerning land. God makes a big deal about land. He always has. Many people ask why. Well, it's because he created it and he makes it his. Plus, we were taken from that dirt and all that is taken from what was created belongs to him. The land of Israel, prime real estate for God. God's premium property is that of the land of Israel. The Garden of Eden was God's first prime real estate property that he made a big deal about. The fact is that if you measure out the cubes of Eden, it is 1,500 square miles, which, by the way, happens to be the same measurements of the New Jerusalem. You will discover that Israel sits on this prime property, this prime real estate. Many believe Israel is where the Tree of Life was located, most likely in Jerusalem. In fact, there are many, and I'm one of them, that believes the Tree of Life sits on the Holy Hill. By carefully studying the continuous history of the Babylonians, the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil was probably located in or around the old city of Babylon, that is in modern-day Iraq. Many Christian teachers make it sound like the two trees were side by side. This simply was not the case. We don't know and may not ever know where exactly these two trees were, but I am confident of this. As for God, it makes a big difference because the end times will be focused upon the locations of these two trees. The redemptive process that God is taking regarding his land started in the garden, and it will finish there as well. Special note here, when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, he closed the gate and placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard that gate. There is no mention anywhere in scripture that God led Satan out of the garden. That is an important theological piece of information that you need to understand. I believe that he is still bound in that 1,500 square mile territory, that has been measured off by God, Satan would be free to run from border to border, but cannot step through that gate. I personally believe that if you looked on a map, you laid out the 1,500 square miles, which I have done, that places Jerusalem right in the area of the original Garden of Eden. 
That garden presently covers all of old Rome, the Roman Catholic nation, Greece, Turkey where the seven churches were, Armenia, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Sudan, and Libya. These are all of the countries in present-day news that we find a great deal of conflict. Now back to Satan. Satan has limited freedom to roam around these domains. And that is why we have always seen him move his throne from place to place within these parameters. Not once does God talk about Satan hanging his hat anywhere outside of these parameters. Now his demons, on the other hand, are a different story. For God accomplishing the end times events, he granted the demons the ability to roam worldwide. But as for Satan, no go. In fact, when you look into the end times, as we discuss Satan's position in these end times, we're going to discover that he stays in the throne chair of the final temple that will be built. And that would precisely confirm everything we're talking about. Since Satan has a trinity, the beast, false prophet, and the Antichrist, Satan will rule through the other two from that seat. So contrary to popular opinion in radical Muslims, America is not the great Satan. By the way, I believe the gate is on the east side of the garden, and that puts Iran in the significant power position with Israel. Keep your eyes on Iran. They believe, quote-unquote, God has called them to remove the existence of Israel. They aren't big enough to do the job on their own, but with nine other kings, horns, they will be able to give it a very serious attempt. Although I do believe that the hatred Syria and Iraq and Iran has with Israel will be the fuel and kickoff point of that final battle. Now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. We now have the scene of the throne, the four creatures previously talked about, the 24 elders and the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. To start, it is very unusual for a lamb to have horns, and especially seven, and they certainly don't have seven eyes. These horns are symbolic of the power of Christ, of his dominion and government, and demonstration of his power as the king, the one in authority. Keep in mind that traditionally horns are symbolic of kings of nations, according to Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. And now Christ himself is called the horn of David and the horn of salvation, according to Psalms 132.17. God is revealing here the significance of the horns of power and dominion, the number seven signifies the fullness and perfection of his power and authority over the seven churches. And he says, for man is head of the woman, as Christ is head of the church. He is our pastor. Being the mediator, all power in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ. This status is what gives him the pure prerogative to, quote-unquote, Open the book and break the seals. The seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth to accomplish the works of God the Father. Some teachers interpret these seven spirits to be angels. I will not classify them as such. 
If the Lord says there are spirits, then they are precisely that. Another little note here. Spirits are living extensions of the authority figure, and angels are workers of the Spirit and belong to Christ and are at His command to do His will and are sent by Him to go into the parts of the earth to execute God the Father's divine will. The spirits spoken here are representatives of the Spirit of God and His gifts, which Christ received without measure both in his human nature and his incarnation and after his resurrection from the dead. During his ascension, he imparts these gifts, spirits, to his apostles and ministering servants, whom he sent out into all the earth. This dichotomy is much like the bride of Christ being of many parts but still one body. So are these spirits multiplied but being a representation of one spirit the Holy Spirit. These seven eyes are the seven points of perfection and knowledge of Christ. They are what watches and supervises in all directions, past, present, and future. To keep it simple, they are the eyes of the Father that report, reveal, and explain, and fulfill all prophecies. Also in verse 7, we see Christ coming to take the book out of the hands of God the Father, who has been holding it close to his bosom throughout all of eternity. Big moment here. Since Christ has been given permission and prominent authority to approach his Abba and take from him the book of eternal secrets unfolding the power of God's prophecies. Now with the scroll in his hands, all of heaven comes to attention. And time stops to embrace this eternal moment of revelation. All present, the four creatures and the twenty-four elders, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of Christ, and all the heavenly angels are at the altar of sacrifice and thanksgiving. Much has been sacrificed for this moment, and there is much for all eternity to be thankful for. Each of the creatures and elders has a harp in hand and ready to fall before the Lamb of God and sing a new song. Before we talk about this new song, we need to make special mention of the little clip in this scene. Note the last two phrases in this verse, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let's review these golden bowls. These golden bowls of incense are representative of the sweet-smelling odor of the beloved prayers of the Bride of Christ. The idea comes to us from God's requirement to have the shewbread table in which incense was put upon the bread itself that was housed in the golden vials. This bowl is full of incense. It is revealing every single prayer that every saint has ever prayed, and it becomes a very sweet aroma unto the Lord. It also reveals the great love that God the Father has for his Son and his bridal members. And that aroma goes directly up to the nostrils of the living God. They are received, I might add, as long as they were put in the name and faith of Jesus. 
Sincere prayer is that which is birthed in the soul and comes from the heart, even from a heart of gold, which is purified, by the way, through trials, persecutions, creating endurance for the beloved saint's position in Christ Jesus. Of course, that is accomplished through the blood of Jesus. To obtain the heart of our groom requires us to ask from a purified heart. We need to ask in faith, not wavering, and forever being focused on praying for others. question needs to be asked to every single one of us is how full is our bowl? Most of us Christians, indwelled Christians, struggle with the ideation of do we pray enough? That's not how we should look at it. Every prayer is saved. Every tear is saved. Whether you pray one prayer before you die or a million prayers before you die, the measurement is kept in this vial. And this is a significant theological statement. Let's look at verse 9 and see what it has to tell us. The eternal bursting forth of singing a new song. This song will reveal the complete worthiness of Christ and his ability and prerogative to open the seven seals. He is worthy for the following reasons. Number one, he was slain for the sake of your transgressions, sins. Number two, he has redeemed us and restored us to a proper relationship with God through Christ Jesus, by way of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He paid the price for this redemption that only he could pay, and that payment came through shedding his own blood. Number four, that this price covered only those, listen carefully, only those he has chosen by the way of the Lamb. This song is only worthy of being sung at this time. This new song could not be sung over God or Christ until the seals were ready to be opened. Now is the time. The words can be shouted out and the song could be sung. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom, a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It needs to be noted that the song is not being sung by the angels, but rather the elders and the four creatures. The song is the song of Moses, according to Revelation 15.3. This song celebrates all of what God has done for Israel through the ages. For this is the song of redemption. Finally, the song also reveals the doctrines of the past, present, and future. I call this doctrinal singing. First, we see the statement of the worthiness of the Lamb. Secondly, we know the price God paid for this moment. Third, we see God taking from every tribe, language, culture, people, and nation for his own. 
And lastly, we see God revealing the future positioning and positions of his people on this earth, ruling the nations of the new earth. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the four positions of a believer. These four positions are the authentic role that we shall be playing on the new earth. We'll talk about the conditions and benefits of redemption. We cannot ignore the headquarters during the 1,000-year reign. That's also what is considered the 1,000-year judgment. Then we're going to take a glimpse at the 7,000-year millennium chart, keeping in mind that one day to God is 1,000 years to man. And that puts God's entire work in preparing for this moment in 7,000 years. And we are at the end of that 6,000-year mark. Then we're going to start talking about the seven attributes of Jesus Christ. We have some exciting things coming forward, and we certainly hope that you join us. It has been an honor to serve you today. It is our hope that this message stimulates an eternal and internal revival through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Always remember, the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Why? Because He is the Word. When you study the complex book of Revelation, the Spirit will bring it alive. All you have to do is ask Him. Until next time.